Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you for downloading another episode from the Unconventional Soldier podcast, which aims to record the history of the British Army's STA patrols unit through the voices of the veterans who serve in its ranks. Over the course of the series, we've covered the unit's inception in 1982, when it had a stay-behind OP role, through to the end of the Cold War. This then led to the search for a new direction in an ever-changing, more complicated world that included armoured recce operations on Alt Granby and divisional recce roles in the Balkans. Finally, we discussed how the battery evaded obsolescence at the start of the 21st century by carving a new role in Iraq and proving this concept of operations in Afghanistan. Our guest today is Scott, who's a serving battery commander of 473 Battery, and we'll be discussing the role of the unit today, the challenges it faces now and in the future, and as normal, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is his choice of book, film and luxury item. So Scott, thanks for coming on the pod. And as normal, we'll start off with your military backstory. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, I think before I start on my military career, I just want to say a huge thank you for uh, to, the, to the both of you, really, for, for running this podcast series. I think um, seeing the growth of the of the podcast and the amount of uh, followers and, and downloads you've been getting, it's been really, uh, really great to, to see this come through. You know, I think for such a small unit to get our history out there about what we are, what we do is really important. So, so a huge thank you to you for doing that. 
Um, in terms of my career, well, uh, I've had a slightly an unorthodox career, really, in the military. Um, so from a young age, I was fascinated by the military. I'm not really sure why that was. Uh, I think I saw an episode of Soldier Soldier when I was young uh, with Robson and Jerome, and uh, and I was fixated. I just, I just something about it made me think, oh, that, I want to do, I want to do that, I want to be part of that. Uh, and then from that moment, as a young adult, I was, I sort of loved the military, whether it be war movies, action movies, uh, reading books, and so on. It was so that kind of really caught my attention. And then I joined a fantastic youth organization called the Army Cadet Force. And I'm not sure if we've got any listeners who are from the cadets, but um, I spent five years in a cadet force uh, from about 12 years old all the way through to 16 years old before I joined the army. Uh, and what a fantastic organization for for young young people going through school age, you know. And I know a large percentage of those who, who do the cadets go on to the military, but a large proportion do not as well. And um, But I think it's a great organization which really helps young people to, to really sort of gain confidence and stuff like that. So that was really great for me for someone who wanted to, to join the military. Uh, I love my time doing that. Uh, and then I think through school, really, I, I don't know, I, it wasn't that I didn't enjoy school, but um, I knew I wanted to join the army. Uh, and probably slightly naively, I just sort of rushed into to getting into the army as quickly as I could, much to the dismay of my parents who probably wanted me to go to uh, air, do my do my A-levels at sixth form and then go on to university. Um, but my, my sort of vision was set. And so I applied to, to join the army at the age of sort of 16, did my normal sort of selection process and, and got offered some units of choice. Uh, and I always said that if I didn't join the military, I'd probably join the police force. Um, and then I found out about an organisation called the Military Police. Uh, and so I actually joined. Yeah, I know. Blow, you're blowing it, Scott. Sorry to interrupt you. You're blowing your credibility now. You started off with Robson and Jerome, and now you've got to the Military Police. I think we should kick you off the pod. <laughs> well, I've got to get some humour in there, haven't I? <laughs> um, yeah, so I, so I ended up hearing about the Military Police. And uh, I weirdly also as well was fixated by, by dogs. I love dogs. And uh, I always wanted to be a dog hander as well. I'm uh, not really sure why, but uh, I just loved that. And, and the Military Police had a, a dog section uh, at the time as well. So... I kind of saw the military police as a as a sort of opportunity that ticked all the boxes I wanted. So the police aspect, the dog aspect, and there's a few other um, you know bits going on as well. Um, and so I ended up doing my basic training, uh, joined the Royal Military Police, completed my phase two training down at the um, uh, Defence College of Police and Garden down at Suffolk Park. Uh, and during my phase two. You know, we, we had to sort of put in our, our preferences for where we want to go on our first posting. And I was really keen to go to, to Colchester, to 16 Brigade, to, to do P Company as a sort of young guy. I really wanted to push my push my boundaries. And, uh, you know, it was close to home as well. So I'm sort of from that neck of the woods. So I was kind of liking the idea of being able to pop home, see my friends at weekends. And I remember my platoon sergeant at the time. And I probably learned my first valuable lesson in the army at that stage of always trust your senior NCOs and, and their wisdom and knowledge. And, uh, and he said to me, he's like, Scott, you need to go to, to Germany. Uh, you need to go to Germany. You need to join a unit out there. I need to go on operations straight away. And I remember at the time I was thinking, no, no, that's definitely not what I want to do. I want to go to Colchester. I want to do P Company and, uh, and, and serve in that brigade. Anyway, I didn't. I didn't get a choice in it, and and before I knew it, I was heading off to Germany, as a as I think as a sort of seventeen year old uh, at that time, and I went over to Osnabrück, and you know, for a young adult, you know, what an experience going straight out to Germany, and you know, for those who served in Germany, will know the highlights of being in such a place, and. Uh, and I also went, therefore, straight onto rotation for pre-deployment training to, to Iraq. So I spent about four months actually in Osnabrück before I was then flying on an aircraft, uh, heading over to, to Basra uh, on Optelic 11. 
And it's actually interesting when I look back to some of your other previous podcasts with, with Tim and John and the experience they had. Um, and I can relate to much of what they covered, especially when Tim, you know, spoke about how sort of as I got out to Rack and Telic 11 in Telic 10, we had just collapsed back from Basra Palace um, and the Shalara Hotel back to sort of the main A pod. And we sort of, you know, refixated ourselves in the A pod. And during my six months, we pretty much were in that location throughout, apart from going out doing certain deliberate operations. You know, and, and I can sort of relate to a lot of things that they covered as well. Had a great six months out on tour. You know, I think for a young adult, again, really developed, you know, had to really mature, uh, as you can probably expect, um, from not only being on operations, but also working with other battle groups out there and, and working with very sort of mature and professional individuals. And during that time, I mean, I, the Royal Military Police had a, the close protection unit and they still do. Uh, and that was another element I really was interested in doing. Now, it used to be sort of around that time that you had to have served a minimum of four years. You had to be a minimum of a corporal to, to do that role before you could even apply to go on the course. But a bit like the battery in, in the height of Afghanistan, which JD covered in the previous podcast, um, the close protection unit were, were really in high demand, you know, with Iraq going on, Afghanistan going on, plus a number of other operations they had overseas at that time. And so they were really struggling, much like the battery was in Afghanistan, to, to meet the demand uh, with the supply they had. And so they kind of had to evolve. And, uh, you know, and I know we're going to cover this later about how you evolve. Um, and they sort of changed the rules. And so they opened up to anyone, you know, as long as you haven't, you know, had, had about a minimum of years worth of service in the military police. And so I... I applied uh, to do the course, much to the sort of dismay of my troop 2IC, who was a staff sergeant who was a, a seasoned veteran close protection man who was not keen on me as a sort of young 18-year-old going to do the, the close protection course. Um, but I went anyway, and uh, I think for me, CPU has got many similarities to Force and 3 Battery um, because it's a small unit, um, but highly professional, highly trained. They do a very unique and specialist role. The individuals that want to go there, you know, want to push themselves out of comfort zone, they want to do something specialist. And then when you deploy, you're working in a really small team. You're in, you know, an isolated area. You're working at reach away from friendly forces. And so I can see many uh, similarities now to, to Force and 3 Battery. Uh, and also what I was uh, really impressed about with, with CPU was they ran their own selection course, much like we do. Uh, it was all their own instructors. They also started out in a similar background, which was, you know, from special forces instructors through to the close protection role running it themselves. And so I put my fr- myself through it. I think it was about a 10 week course, quite arduous, you know, two PT sessions a day, uh, lots of sort of hand to hand kind of protection training ranges. And uh, I think for me, it really swept up my, my personal skills and drills as well. Uh, and one of the caveats really was at that time, because of the demand, if you passed the course, you were pretty much going straight on pre-deployment training again. So uh, I'd pretty much been back in the UK for about two months. I uh, had my post-operational tour leave, uh, went and did a close protection course. And within about three months, I was back out in Iraq on Telic 13, protecting as part of a four-man team, the, the GOC of uh, Multinational Division Southeast, who was a two-star Royal Marine General, uh, who, who uh, wasn't keen on having these four Royal Marine Police guys, you know, following him around everywhere, you know, supposedly protecting him and, and all this. Is uh, it an all-arms course that, or is it just always Royal Military Police to select? Yeah, so it's, it's service police. So you can be a Royal Marine who serves in the police troop uh, down at three commando brigades, uh, and they also have the, the RA police as well who come across but it's predominantly 
Royal Military Police. So mainly army, and it's an army-run course. Um, you know, pretty much all funded mainly by the army. Um, but you do have the occasional Royal Marine and, and RAF guy come along as well, which was great. You know, uh, I worked for Royal Marine in Iraq, and I had no idea what you, you know, what you were saying to me. My, my sort of first two months, he was talking about hoofing and wets, um, but learned the lingo really quickly and, and understood what he was going on about. Um, so that was great as well. Just more experiences. I then just just loving it really. I then there was a troll came in whilst I was there for for a position out in Afghanistan for eight months. Uh, they were looking for volunteers to, to head straight, pretty much finish that tour, head straight out to Afghanistan. I was young, single at the time, so I had nothing better to do. And so, uh, yeah, I, I put my hand up and got back from my second tour of Iraq, had about a month at home. Uh, didn't really see much of my family. Didn't really bother me, but uh, I think my mum was a little bit upset. And uh, then was flying on a plane straight out to, to Afghanistan, where I looked after the the British ambassador in the embassy, who at the time was was a guy called Mark Sedwell, who's actually sort of not too long ago finished as the the um, national security advisor for the UK. Uh, and he was a great individual to work for. I mean, as a young kind of adult again, just being exposed to kind of that strategic to operational level stuff uh, as a young NCO was just phenomenal um, and really helped me really just understand the bigger picture. And it was kind of on that tour really that uh, having had a kind of a really successful kind of two years really up until that point in, in the army as a sort of flash to bang. Uh, I was randomly approached one day by uh, my operations officer back in Longmore who who said, look, we've heard some good stuff. Um, have you ever thought about commissioning? Uh, and I had thought about commissioning before I joined the army to sort of go down the Welbeck route, which was the, the Defence Sixth Form, but it just wasn't for me. So I, I kind of just joined the army as a soldier. And uh, anyway, so he said, well, you've got two months left of your tour. Have a think about it. And then uh, let me know when you get back to the UK. Uh, and the ambassador at the time um, called me in because he had heard about it. And he said to me, he's like, Scott, you've got to do it. He's like, you can't not do this. And so that was kind of it, really. Um, I got back to the UK. I went through sort of all the officer selection processes, got the thumbs up. Uh, and before I knew it, I was, I was heading off to Sandhurst. And it was during that period, really, that didn't want to go back to the RMP because it's such a small unit and I knew that I'd go back and bump into to sort of friends of mine and I thought that would be really difficult from a leadership perspective. So I looked at my opportunities and I'd already thought about the Gunners before um, I went and joined the Army anyway. Um, and I think I'd seen like the sort of the fire support team commander role which quite interested me. And yeah, so I applied to join the Gunners uh, and, then, and then got through which was which was great. And I remember having my first interaction with Force and 3 Battery which was a bit like John Dennison on the previous podcast. I'd, I'd actually gone to lark hill on the sort of uh, look at life weekends you do at sandhurst yeah uh and we were on swordsy plane uh looking at all the different capabilities of the, of the gunners uh and i remember this sort of individual and it was only one of them and he was he just had immaculate cam cream was completely cammed up from head to toe um but it was it was you know awesome had loads of sophisticated equipment just sort of non-traditional equipment that you wouldn't normally find in the army you could tell he was really all over his personal skills and drills and his, his kit was was great for the, for the field uh and it turns out that individual was a serious station force on three battery i can't remember who it was but um but i remember that just stuck in my mind and i was like from that moment i was always interested in in this small unit which was which was force and three so finished my rest of the time at sandhurst did the wyo's course uh, I, I then spent my first two years down at 12 regiment royal artillery which is an air defense regiment uh and i was in the the, the air assault battery so i got to go and do p company finally um and that was that was awesome and supported 16 brigade for two years uh, and then whilst I was down there, actually, there was a, an infamous late entry officer who, who you both know really well, but I won't mention his name, who was one of the battery captains down there. And uh, he, he found out I wanted to go to, to 473. So he called me in uh, and I was, I was, I was pretty nervous because uh, he's quite a scary man. Um, and he said to me, he's like, Scott, again, you've got to do it. He's like, 
don't don't regret it. Just get up there, get up to Catrick, get on the patrols course, and 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 do it. And so I did. Um, and you know, the course is the course. It's it's not pleasant, but it's awesome. Uh, and then did sort of just over two years in the battery as a as a troop commander, uh, which I loved. Loads of great opportunities. I then went down to the HAC as adjutant, um, and that was quite nice as well because obviously the HAC have strong links, and I know you've got a podcast uh, covering the HAC aspect uh, as well. And so that was great. I could keep a door, a foot in a door, really, with with the battery, even when I was down in London as the adjutant at the HAC. And then from there, I went on tour again for nine months in Afghanistan, doing a mentoring job, looking sort of training some of the Afghan officers out there, which was huge, hugely rewarding. You know, I sort of learned some new skills and traits over there, which you know probably hadn't really had to test myself with as. As, as, as an officer but what an experience and then before I knew it nine months was gone I went to staff college and then after a couple of years I found myself back to the battery as the BC so slightly long-winded uh, review there but hopefully that gives so, you no, that's a really interesting and uh, strange route you followed from yeah, know, yeah. and Jerome through via the RMP so obviously we're going to talk about the role of the unit today Scott but have you found that that path that you followed quite a diverse number of skills you've picked up did that help you as a leader, you know, looking at the direction you wanted the battery to go in and form in the training, did you did, did you have any say in that, that those experiences, did they have a lot of ways of informing where you wanted the battery to go? Yeah, massively. I think I think my career today has definitely sort of shaped me as an individual, you know, who I am, the way I sort of like to conduct myself, how I see myself as a leader. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm not going to go into sort of leadership theory or anything like that. But um, I think it's definitely played a part in, in, in the way I operate today, how I sort of give out my direction to the battery and, and the vision that I have for the battery and where I see it going and, and how I approach that. But also, I think in many ways, you know, what drew me to the battery was was the fact that it was unique. It was the fact that it was this bunch of, you know, individuals who were from all sorts of backgrounds. You know, they weren't just a stereotypical gunner. They hadn't just gone down a, a standard gunner route, um, you know, and we had people from all different cap badges, from different services. Um, you know, some had come in as a, as a brand new soldier, having just joined the army. Some had come across as a corporal. And I really liked that about Force and 3, and I still do. I think it's one of our, one of our key strengths that we get all these diverse backgrounds come together and it just makes us a stronger coherent unit and so you know for me that was that was really important and i think that was the sort of selling point as well why i want to go to 473 i think all the soldiers in 473 have got strong individualistic uh, ways of doing business certainly was true in kev in my time do you find as well you've got a lot of these individuals are i won't use the term maverick because that's the wrong term but they're quite driven they're quite individualistic but for some reason they go through the patrols course and they all mold into a patrol soldier that is also a very good team player is that still the case today yeah hugely i think as you said they've all got their own characters and you know i would say there's no stereotypical patrol soldier in force and three battery you know from physical shape and appearance we've got guys who are tiny to giants um you know we've got guys who have been to university we've got guys who've joined up straight from sort of like i did when they were sort of young 16 year old went through harrogate um so yeah you you, you get all these individual characters and traits which is great you know but they also do at the same time morph into the the culture and ethos of the battery so i think when you add those two together you get a really strong product and i think that's one of our unique selling points is that we we have these individuals and certainly for me as the battery commander you know it's not like other subunits and friends of mine who are you know bcs or subunit commanders elsewhere where they literally take their subunits away you know a lot of my job is just sending four to six people off on their own with a little bit of direction, you know, give them my intent, but often or not, they are 
going away, headed up by a sergeant, and it's no different to when you guys are in. And they're and they're working to an intent, and they're working to senior officers, they're working to other units. You know, without me as the VC or any of the other battery headquarters being there, uh, and they just pull out of the bag every single time. You know, that I. I I, I'm very fortunate in a sense that having been in the post a short time already, you know, my inbox is constantly filling up with really strong praise from what our guys continue to do now. So I think that's encouraging for me and, you know, one of the reasons why I love this job and, and why I wanted it. Moving on then to the role of the unit today, Scott, we've, we've discussed what the battery's capable of over the last 30 years and how it's constantly evolved. And uh, certainly in John Dennison's pod, it came out that, you know, even in Afghanistan, the battery did a variety of roles. But for any young soldier thinking of joining the unit today, what is the actual role of the unit in 2021? Yeah, so well, I think what I'd say first of all is that for us, it's a really interesting, exciting time. Uh, there's much change going on in the army, you know, as we sort of re-pivot uh, and readjust, as you say, and evolve to, to kind of make sure the army's set for the future. Um, and it's no different for Force and 3 battery, we're doing the same. I think in terms of, of what we do, I think our core role is still very much there, you know, which is, for me, providing that kind of high-end human and technical surveillance and reconnaissance in those high-risk areas. So slightly different to perhaps some of the other units in the army that still provide a reconnaissance role but it's just in a sort of different environment different different uh, place um, and so we're trained as you know to kind of operate in those high threat environments uh, sort of outreach out in isolation and i see ourselves as having kind of the surveillance and reconnaissance piece but also the, the joint effects or joint fires piece but more joint effects these days which is basically the coordination of uh, different types of uh, capabilities and assets whether it be surface to surface fires surface to air fires or even nowadays you know some of the work we're doing is is also fusing kind of those those soft effects as well so kind of information operations information activities how you combine that to to achieve a greater effect in support of what you're doing i think in a warfighting role again our role remains supporting the warfighting division so operating that deep battle space and i know that in previous podcasts i think with john and, and tim they've alluded to this kind of these long range groupings that will go out in kind of of the deep battle space uh, and that's very much where we sit so we you know we'll push out uh, in our small teams in a big area but you know way into advance of, the, of, of most friendly forces uh, really try and get behind enemy lines really uh, and disrupt them as much as possible uh, and, and neutralize a lot of their threats and, and get those weaknesses down really and so that's kind of our war fighting role but i think with force and three we offer a lot more as well you know than just a sort of conventional uh sort of green army divisional role and um that's something we we're doing a lot more of these days as well is, is sort of there's lots of other operations going on that we're we're playing a part in as well so i think it's a really exciting time and and we kind of have what i see is like two two approaches or two two prongs to us we have our conventional role and our non-conventional role uh, or unconventional role which is obviously the title of this podcast so, so quite fitting really a great title it is very good. That's all I can say. Kev will never let me forget this. His main contribution, apart from his good looks... Probably the only contribution. ...has been, has been the pod title. Yeah, and I think the pod, pod title is, is spot on. And, I, you know, I'm not going to dwell on it too much. I'm going to too much information uh, in, in terms of what we're up to. But I think, you know, the unconventional soldier just fits force and three perfectly because yeah. um, not only are our people unconventional in the way they they are just because they're very sort of from all unique backgrounds but i think a lot of what we do and what we offer is is that kind of unconventional approach to stuff you know we we're a unit that thinks diverse we we're a unit that thinks slightly unconventional in the way we operate anyway and so i think when we're given a problem we can come up with different solutions and novel ways of dealing with that problem which you know perhaps you know you wouldn't find elsewhere in the army necessarily in 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 most places because 
you know doctrines there and most people just naturally follow the doctrine or the mm. routine training they go through whereas i think we're given the luxury in some ways as a small unit and a specialist unit to to be unconventional yeah to cut your own track a little bit i think um from the army of the 80s to the army of the 21st century i think in general across the armed forces there's more agility than there was before during the cold war phase it was very doctrine this is how you do it this is where you go this is what you do and even in those days when General Stone raised up the troops, we were unconventional then uh, in that role. Obviously, you've listened to some of the pods in the series. So what are your thoughts about the evolution of the battery from a single troop back in 1982 with a very specific role? And it was a, really was very specific and with a lot of doctrine as well, even though we had a bit of um, autonomy to where it is today. Um, and what does the future hold for the battery? Yes, I think our, our history is fascinating. Uh, and you know, I think Force and Three as a unit is a really unique entity in itself. And, um, you know, I think these podcasts have been fantastic to really bring to life our history because it's not well known, you know, and I think even those in the, in the, in the unit, you know, we're so busy often or not that we, we don't take a moment to actually stop and look at our history. Uh, but I think if you look from when the battery was formed to the sort of stay behind OP role, which was very much just dig yourselves in, you know, be very professional, operate at that sort of reach in isolation, but effectively wait for something to come to you, uh, to where we are today. And JD covered it fantastically in his last podcast. Um, you know about well actually we're very different nowadays we're 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 more deploying forwards to, to areas that we need to and i think that's that's kind of the way the army is these days there's this sort of lots of change going on yes but ultimately for a force and three battery our, our that role remains you know we're still operating those small teams pushing out uh ultimately to service our senior commanders and and give them the the mission critical information they need to make those key decisions uh and ultimately orientate their forces the best the best way they can um i think there's there's still challenges uh, there will always will be, you know, not just for, for us as a small unit, but for the for the entire army and defence, you know. And I think for me, it's all about understanding the potential challenges, what they kind of mean through the strategic operational all the way down to the tactical level at unit level, and then making sure that I'm ready to meet those challenges before they kind of really become a problem, and so we can we can orientate uh, and if need to just to sort of adjust. Um, However, I say we're relatively lucky in a sense we we haven't really need to do that much in my time or certainly the last few years. I think there's still highs and lows. You know, that's that's always going to be the case. I think probably if you relate back to your time in in the, in the battery, there was probably probably lots of highs and lows. Uh, I'm 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 no doubt that they'll continue. You know, we'll have moments which will be we're on cloud nine, and then you know naturally there might be a bit of a dip where we we sort of just have a moment where we just need to reconsolidate and just have a bit of a break because we're so busy. Um, often not, we can just get so focused in, in 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 achieving output that we take or we stop taking a moment just to take a breath really. And I think a biggest issue for us even still today and it's been covered plenty of times in these previous podcasts is just it's constantly sort of that feeling of having to prove ourselves of who we are as a unit and mm. and just that kind of lack of understanding across the army now i will say actually what is positive is that uh i would say force and three is 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 relatively known sort of really widely across the army now and our reputation is really high which is great and you know the fact that we've got senior officers who openly know who force and three battery are you know talk about force and three battery and request us to go and support them is really encouraging and you know i think that that's all great because you know it means as a small unit we're achieving a lot of effect uh, and we're having that positive effect um, across the army but you know the problem is with the army we often work in two-year cycles certainly for officers and, and staff officers and so what you tend to find is it was probably the case in, in your day is you as you spend two years really proving yourself to a to a commander or a unit or a division or a brigade or whatever uh, and you sort of you've got your crop really high those personalities then leave 
and then you start from zero again with a with a new bunch, uh, yeah, and, yeah. and then you have to sort of go through that cycle again. And that's still that's still evident now, you know. Unfortunately, and for me, sometimes the the, the guys get frustrated by that, and I and I get it. It, it is frustrating. You know, one thing I say, one, one thing I say to them is, well, listen to these podcasts, and actually you'll realise that this is this is no this different. Been the uh, way it's always been. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I don't see that necessarily as a, as a threat. I actually see it as an opportunity. And, you know, because you tend to find as well that those people, when they leave, they go off into other jobs, um, you know, and actually, whilst they might not no longer be in your immediate chain of command or you might not be supporting them, they've gone off to somewhere else, whether it be Army Headquarters or another formation, and they still know who Force and 3 Battery are, and they've still got that positive view about what we, we offer. So you never know when you're going to bump into them or they're going to have some sort of input in what you do. So for me, I don't necessarily see it as a threat. I see it as an opportunity. Part of my job as the Battery Commander is is continuing to get out there across the entirety of defense, really, and just making sure you know there's a steady drumbeat of, hey, this is us. This is what we can do. Um, this is what we've done in the past. Let us know if you if you want us. You know, we're we're good to go. I think the battery's always been on a communication campaign from the very beginning. When we formed into a battery from the troops, when, the, when we were in the troops, we didn't have to uh, during the Cold War. We didn't have to worry about our survival in the same way. But as soon as the war came down and we were looking for a new role, and then the battery went to the Gulf, which helped with that. From then on, the communication and influencing campaign started. And actually, that is, that is probably one of the Batch's main efforts throughout, no matter what operations they're on, is getting it ready again for when they come up an operation and people catch their breath and they quickly forget about all those other units that supported them. And they, they, they fight for their own survival as well through options for change, through all these strategic defence reviews. Every regiment then feels under the cosh and every regiment then starts protecting itself. And as a subunit, it's always harder. Yeah, massively. And I'd say as well that, you know, social media absolutely helps yeah. the, the, sort of the messaging and the influence campaign, you know, and, you know, our Instagram account is, is, is doing great. And, you know, that, that really helps to get the message about who we are as a unit. And we're, you know, inundated with messages, sort of direct messages from people who are looking to join the army, sort of inquiring more. We get losing messages from people who are currently serving, you know, looking at options, which is, which is fantastic. And that's always been the case, I think. But so social media absolutely amplifies that ability you know so i think that's a positive thing as well uh, that you can use social media to, to to do that but yeah i think like you say kev it's it's making sure that we are ma- we are still getting out into into the rider army yeah. not becoming isolated ourselves in what we do no oh, absolutely one of the uh, dividends we talked about in past podcasts of the afghan uh, operation herrick was the fact that it broke the mold that the army had that only the marines and the parachute regiment could do out of area operations and tough environments with hard fighting. And I think really that was maybe a carryover from the Falklands in, in some respects. So you've got a modern army now who's got a lot of senior NCOs with a lot of operational experience in Herrick. The challenge of recruitment in that environment must be quite hard because you've got a lot of guys now who know that they don't have to go to specialist units in order to get really good operational tours. You look at Mali now, you know, you've got uh, the army uh, over there. There's lots of training teams all over the place. So looking at those challenges, how are you getting to recruit suitable people in this current climate, Scott? Yeah, so I think you you hit a nail on the head there, Bergie. With we are a smaller army, and so naturally by numbers, there's less people to recruit from. Uh, you know, that's just a fact. Um, so I think it's being clever about the way we recruit, um, and certainly you know one of the things I'm doing in the battery at the moment is is just trying to do some sort of our own analysis, really to understand how we amplify our recruiting. You know, how we're targeting the right areas, uh, but also trying to identify what we want from a modern day patrol soldier. 
um, because I think it, we are in a different space to what we have been in the past. Um, you know, and I think, we're, you know, I'm not going to say anything about the generations because we've all come from different de- generations. And there's always this criticism about the modern generation not being as, you know, fit, arduous, mentally strong. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that's true at all because... But that generation fought in you know, Afghanistan yeah. some of the hardest fights in the Second <laughs> yeah. World War. So it, does, it doesn't hold water, does it? Exactly. And, you know, much of what we do today is, is, is operating really technical uh, kit and equipment where, you know, you need these people who, you know, funny enough, uh, can can get a smartphone or get a get an electronic device and they can do wonderful things with that, uh, which ultimately allows you to do your job better than perhaps what you've done it before. And so I think it's a bit of a cultural mindset uh, the whole army's going through, really. Um, and I think it's really positive. And I think there's lots of great stuff going on. I think that the people joining the army are really good, genuinely. Um, I think we've got some really strong people coming through the army. And I'd say the quality is absolutely still there. Uh, and I think to then bring that to Force and 3 battery, I think it's just there is still plenty of people that want to do something specialist. Uh, and they still want to, you know, when I say specialist, still, you know, nowadays you could do cyber specialism, which which is absolutely still a specialist capability. But, you know, for Force and 3 battery, it's still very arduous. It's still very field-focused by what we do. It's still operating kind of uh, in the field or, you know, out on the ground. And there are still loads of people that want to do something like that, uh, which is great. You know, so it's all about just tapping into those people and also just being smart about the way we do our business. So it's understanding that these young 16, 17-year-olds who are coming through now who want to do that, they're still growing. You know what I mean? They're, they're still... They're not going to be the finished product. And, you know, I think back to my crazy career uh, and I did P Company eventually when I was a young second lieutenant at the age of 21. But I remember going through P Company thinking, you know, I was naive to think I would have done that at 17 because there was no way my body could have taken taken up that hurt. Uh, and so I think sometimes, you know, it's just understanding that and just giving people a bit more time. Now, you know, we put some some different mechanisms in, in in the regiment and in the battery to now really help develop these young people come through so that we basically get them to a to a much higher start state ready to go on the patrols course. And that's that's hopefully having a real positive uh, effect on, on our people coming through, certainly from phase two. So yeah, it's just really, for me, it's about being smart about the way we do it. I think it's using social media to, to get our message out about who we are, get that interest going. And, you know, as I said, there's there's loads of interest out there, which is which is positive. And then once we've got them hooked, making sure we invest our time into them, you know, and, and absolutely being forward leaning rather than sort of expecting them just to do everything and, and find their own way to us. And I think, you know, nowadays, not just us as a unit, force and three battery but all of the other specialist capabilities across the army including mab uh, and, and special forces have to be kind of proactive in their recruiting and and also the way they get the people ready so we're in the same boat but um i'm confident and uh, it's still having a positive output for us you have to be so careful about messaging as well because i remember about 16, 17 years ago, the Royal Marines had a recruiting campaign that said 99.9% people need not apply or something along that, that figure. And I remember talking to a mate who was in the Royal Marines and he said, the trouble with that advert was it looked great on the screen. It looked great to people who'd passed the Marines uh, commando course, but it actually put a lot of people off because people were going, well, I'm not part of that 1% that, that might get in, so I won't even bother applying. And I think that in the days of social media and you know all that sort of thing, I think how you that message you send out to potential recruits is, is vitally important too. And I think that's why the Instagram page is so useful for MD who wants to join 473. Just have a look at that Instagram page. You can talk to the seven members. It's, I think it's really critical. Yeah, and I think as well that, um, and I kind of touched on it just a minute ago, but I think, you know, there's, some would argue 
uh, for, you know, those who still have quite an old school mindset would argue that, you know, we shouldn't be investing loads of our time into people. You know, they should come already prepared, ready to good to go. Uh, and I just don't think we're in that space anymore. I think, you know, the whole army, the whole of defense and, and not only military, but I think the wider society as well, you know, you've, you've got to coach and mentor people these days. You know, you've got to invest time into them. And if you do that, you'll get a better product, you know, and, um, and I'm, I'm a firm believer by that because I've had plenty of people invest time into me um yeah. both as a soldier and as an officer uh, and i feel like it's really developed me positively as the way i am now today and so i think sometimes you know we just need to put ourselves out of our own comfort zones but also just give a little bit more percent in terms of coaching and mentoring people to get them ready uh, and understand as well that initially they might not be the start state standard but probably with a bit more time that'd be brilliant and uh, and it'd be good to go so yeah it's just being smart about it well we've got five percent of us our account subscribers on instagram are female okay so We've got 5% females subscribed to our account. We've got a few female listeners, hopefully, as well. So, obviously, you've seen a a couple of uh, women soldiers have passed P Company, and I believe there's a couple passed commando course as well over the last sort of five, six years. Have you had any female soldiers attempt the course yet? We have, yeah. So, I had a female on my course. Uh, who was was fantastic, brilliant, um, really strong physically and mentally. Uh, but unfortunately, she got a bit of an injury. Uh, she was quite young as well, and I think she basically went through the route of basic training, phase two training, straight to the battery. Which you know, for anyone is a, is is, a, is quite a shock anyway. Let me for again for a young kind of uh, 18, 19 year old. And I think in her in her sort of individual case, she just needed a couple of years in the army just to go and gain some experience, really, about the wider army and so on, and then and then come back. And actually, uh, hopefully, if all if all goes to plan, um, she'll be coming back uh, in the near future. To you know, having now been away on operations, she's done a load of courses. Uh, she's even stronger than what she was a couple of years ago, and I've, I've, I'm confident that she'll have no problem getting through. And actually, we've got a we've got a female lined up for this course as well. So she's she's been going through all the build up training with the team, uh, doing really well. Again, she's slightly young, so military experience isn't there. But again, you know the guys have been really investing time and effort into into the phase two post sort of Lark Hill individuals to to really try and get them, especially during COVID. COVID's been a real real challenge for the whole army to to get the people through the the training pipeline. So again, the whole of the sort of initial training group, training organisations have been really pushing themselves to to get the best they can in the situation, whether that be lots of lessons on zoom or um you know other virtual platforms um and then you know being smart about how they do that but um you know we've been following a similar process and uh, so hopefully she'll, she'll do well on a course and i would say that female interest is absolutely growing you know it's definitely there and again linking back to the, the instagram page you know we get quite a lot of females inquiring about the battery who we are what we do can they join um and again the guys are all over it they're really positive um and i would say as well culturally the, the current members of the battery are are really they're, they're keen for it you know i suppose is what i'm saying is that um they're really they really understand that it will make the team stronger you know and actually you need as i said people from all different backgrounds but in the work we're doing in modern sort of modern warfare you know a lot of what we do whether it be unconventional conventional there's absolute times where two two guys is not the answer and so again for me i see that as a it makes us stronger as a as a, as a unit and what we can provide it's amazing because kevin and i unfortunately are old enough to remember that being gay could get you kicked out of the army and uh, if you got pregnant you're kicked out of the army for no real reason and then thankfully those barriers were broken down and guess what the world never ended <laughs> 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and it's, I think that's where we are with with, with female soldiers. And I hate using the term female soldier because at the end of the day, they're soldiers. But for the we're doing a vocal thing here, and we're trying to get a, talk about a certain you know specific thing. You have to say that. Well, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see. But Kev, when you're in the HAC uh, back in the nineties, there was a couple of uh, female soldiers attempted HAC course, wasn't there? It was course. I think it was the end of nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. Uh, it was the first course with females on. Uh, I had four females on the course, and they were as good as any of the blokes. Uh, as fit of not, and their determination was probably far greater than some of the people on the course, which which I think caught a lot of people out because they wanted it, they were hungry for it, and so they they strived. And I believe they, from then on, the following course there was no females, but I think later years there was more females that went through the HAC course as well. So there's been a lot of interest. And, and when I was down there, we had a, like a lecture weekend. And, and the one thing I pointed out to people was that during the Second World War, SOE, 30% of SOE were females that we were quite happy to throw out of an airplane, put into the middle of bandit country and uh, fight and survive as much as everyone else. You know, so I think with the right training, motivation, and the right circumstances, it works yeah. really and, well. You know, nearer times, you've got 14 intelligence company over Northern Ireland. Yeah. So not not, think, not necessarily think, a Green Army role, but the, the, the selection for that is not, yeah, not easy I, at I think all. It's, uh, the barriers are breaking down. And the barriers have been broken down before. I think we have a short memory in the armed forces. We got to that more conventional sort of doctrine phase post-Second World War where a lot of unconventional forces were formed for the Second World War, did operations around the world, did some interesting stuff. And then as soon as the Second World War finished, all those units disbanded and all that legacy work was forgotten about quite quickly. Yeah, and I think as well, you only have to see um, you know, the work in Iraq and Afghanistan with the British Army, and not just the British Army, but our, our sort of NATO partners as well. Um, the US, you know, the US actually being further ahead than us in, in many respects with, with this. Um you know, but I'm, I think the direction we've gone over the last 10 years has been really positive uh, in the army and, and wider defense as well and the other, other services. Um, but, you know, I, I remember being in Afghanistan and, and seeing plenty of females out conducting combat operations, you know, medics, female searchers, military police, detainee handlers. And you need and it. winning awards. So was there a female medic won an MC yeah. in Iraq, I think it was? Yeah, well, and there's quite yeah. a few awards in Afghanistan as well. You know, and I think you you know that change is needed when people are saying we can't go on this patrol unless we've got a number of females because they can just operate in a way that we can't. And, and again, it's all for me. It's all about understanding strengths and weaknesses. You know, and and the way I see it, working for Force and Three Battery is there's absolute strengths they can bring that 
some some of the current serving members cannot cannot achieve and uh you know it just makes makes the entire team stronger and gives us more opportunity to really to, to sort of deliver what we can well fingers crossed keep us posted uh, if they make the grade it'll be interesting to break that uh, sort of mold scott it'll be interesting to hear what goes on yeah will do john older mentioned in his part that they to uh, anticipate events in emergency planning how do you see the battery evolving to meet the future operational demands because that's really hard to see over the horizon what's coming next and getting ahead of any future defense reviews which i know we spoke about before this is one of the biggest challenges i think that maybe you and the battery face yeah so what i would say is that well one thing i'd give the battery credit for is our ability to to adapt and evolve i think you know these podcasts have been a great example of of our journey uh, and how we have just no matter what the situation no matter what the event uh, whether it be expected or unexpected, we've always just naturally, quickly adapted, analysed the situation uh, and seeked out opportunity. Um, you know, whether it be going out on sort of the first Gulf War and drive around in armoured vehicles, which was absolutely something that Force and Free Battery had, had never done in before, uh, all the way through to the Balkans campaigns, uh, you know, and then as, as others have covered sort of during Iraq and, and Afghanistan as well. So I think our ability to adapt and evolve is, is just part of our DNA. I think that's what we do. Um, and I think from me as the battery commander down to the most junior soldier, they're all just used to that because they just see a problem either, you know, brewing up, coming, uh, and they already start continuously planning or thinking of ways to solve that problem. Uh, or if it's sort of a unexpected problem, again, they're just the team clubs together and everyone comes up with ideas from the most junior all the way up to me. And it's a, it's a shared network. And whilst, yes, as the battery commander, I suppose I get the final decision, but actually the strength of our people is that they're really bright they're really professional and what they offer is a significant amount of of knowledge and experience and so they're always really good at finding novel ways to to deal with stuff i think my job as the battery commander is as you say uh kev is is kind of horizon scanning looking ahead uh you know whether that be through engaging in debate or reading or just you know going to various events seminars or just during my routine work going to different organizations and having discussions and i think it's just understanding really all the different problems everyone's facing across the army and therefore how force and three could potentially help with those problems you know whether it's on mass or whether it's ones and twos whether it's a, a niche skill set that people could really do with and so for again i just sort of judge the atmospherics um of of in the internal work going on in the army and, and wider defense but then also externally i'm very much kind of weirdly as a, as a tactical commander i'm trying to look strategic you know so i'm trying to understand you know what's going on in london uh what's going on across the world you know uh what's going on with our nato partners what's going on with the us what are they doing how does that affect us you know and i think it's it's fairly easy to do some of that because you know using social media uh you know it's very easy nowadays to have discussions. so scott sorry are you actually looking at other units have a similar capability and looking at tactics techniques and procedures and weapons and uh, uh, that sort of thing is it do you go down to that level of detail yeah absolutely you know i think capability development is always ongoing so we're always looking at our capability and how we're going to enhance our own capability in the way we operate whether it's uh, you know our standard operating procedures uh in terms of the way we physically do our business to the kit we use you know and technology is is advancing at such a rapid rate now that you've got to try and keep up with it the best you can um which is which can be challenging in the army because um as, as defense as a whole defense is trying to keep up with emerging technologies it's really difficult because the pace is, is constantly changing so for us i think it's again you know yeah at the tactical level we're definitely doing that all the time you know and you'll be unsurprised to, to hear that my whatsapp is constantly going off from serving members of the unit who are 
sending me links to stuff and you know see, seeing these new technologies emerging and how they could potentially bring that into into our current role and utilize that to enhance our enhance our job and effect on the ground so yeah we're actually doing that as well so is the battery then still a viable isr asset in facing these main threats to the deployment to eyes on the ground and with, with the sometimes the risk averseness of, of defense and governments in operations and with the development of technical um, capabilities that are now coming and won't say replace but would supplement but maybe a bit uh, more tolerable to the commanders nowadays yeah absolutely i mean i'm i'm slightly biased aren't i because of the job i do yeah, but um uh-huh. yeah. you know i've just well. i've just spent the last two years in my previous job teaching combined arms planning to, to junior officers and uh, it's really interesting when you when you sort of train them first of all and then let them loose and, and they go off and do their own planning and you're sort of there just steering steering them to make sure they don't go too off track and uh definitely this over-reliance on on using certain technologies and uas or unmanned yeah. uh, aerial systems is a is a is a good one where you know everyone just thinks you can can launch these kind of uavs uas platforms yeah. and it will solve all your answers uh, and, and people often forget that you normally have limited those uh and they also have their own restrictions as well whether it be weather well cover, cloud weather. cover visibility yeah. battery life endurance yeah. uh, and so culturally it's about getting the message down to them that yes you've got those assets and capabilities you can use but you know they're not always going to be there uh mm. especially if you know with merging technologies the enemy have technologies that can counter those uh, and so i used to you know just to to, to re- reiterate that message i used to sometimes say to them you know you can't use your uavs in, the, in your planning because the the fogs come in and they can't see and it just just to see them react and be like oh, well what are we going to do and i'm like well exactly what are you going to do and it just makes them force or force their thinking and going back to those kind of trusted ways which they know will absolutely still have an effect and, I, and that's yeah. where i see you know for me the sort of 24 7 person in the loop is still a viable isr asset and will continue to be so for, for the future because whilst technology is great and can absolutely enhance your ground operations it can't fully replace it in my view uh, and i think we've tried that in the past uh, not so not sort of my unit but i think militaries have tried to to replace the human with a machine and it's not always been successful and so i think you know they realized that having a blend of the two absolutely is is really kind kind of positive in in terms of delivering greater uh, effect and mass on the ground but um you can't just fully replace a human and uh, and for us as, as sort of the role we conduct in kind of that deep battle space in isolation you know we have technologies that certainly we're using in our unit that can can do some wonderful stuff and enhance our our job on the ground but we still need to be on the ground to do it you know and so it's about how you then blend those two together uh, to give the command ultimately what they need uh, yeah. and that commander could be in the same country or a different country so yeah. you know it's about using that so yeah I do I do I do think it's a viable asset and, and despite kind of the way the things are going I can't see that changing anytime soon no I don't so if I was to knock about 40 years off my age, Scott, how, and I was a, a young, thrusting soldier, I know that's hard to imagine, Kev, I saw you laughing there. Uh, if I could knock 40 years off my age, how would you sell the battery to me now? So I would say if you want to do something uh, different, something unorthodox, uh, and you want to have lots of opportunity for unique stuff that you probably wouldn't find elsewhere in the army, uh, we're a great organisation to, to join. Um and I think, and if I look at what our people get up to, I mean, it's phenomenal, you know, I, and, and the demand is just, just keeps coming in, um, you know, and, and trying to meet that demand is, is probably my biggest challenge as the battery commander to, to ensure that we can try and fulfill all the requests coming in. And, um, you know, I think that there's loads of opportunity to 
get on some great courses, uh, gain some great qualifications and skill sets, again, that you probably wouldn't find elsewhere in the army. Uh, loads of uh, opportunities to get overseas, uh, whether it be on exercises and, you know, our Instagram page is, is a great platform just to see what the guys and girls get up to on a, on a daily basis, really. Um, and they're always away doing great stuff. And if anything, I'm jealous because I don't often get to go. But yeah, I think the people as well. What Our biggest for me, our unique selling point is our people and the culture and ethos that we've therefore got in a unit. You know, we are a relatively relaxed unit because we can be, because we're professional in what we do. So, you know, it's certainly very different to what you might find in a standard subunit elsewhere in the army, not just the Royal Artillery or, or you know, the, the infantry, but across the entire the entirety of the army. And I think people are drawn to that because they come on like a look at life and they sort of spend two days with a battery uh and they look at the people and they go wow that's a great team that's a close-knit team they just all share the same culture and ethos they're really professional what they do they know their stuff they can back it up they've got all this great opportunity to go and do unique stuff uh, which is slightly unorthodox compared to mainstream army stuff um and then add all that together the fact that you know the people are just top of their game really um and you feel part of a close-knit team and, and so people are drawn to that and i think that's one of our unique selling points and sometimes we don't you know we don't have the the sexiest of of kit and equipment we've got some pretty good kit and equipment i'm not going to deny that uh but there are other units that you know potentially have slightly better kit and equipment than us but we still get plenty of people wanting to join us which is which is promising so um for me it's all about the people the culture the ethos and opportunity and uh, i think if you want to be part of that we're a great organization to join and it's open to all three services and you can come along and do a two-year attachment is that is that correct yeah absolutely so uh we've actually got a, a navy individual um on the next course uh who who's probably our first navy for a for as long as i can remember which is which is great that you know again it's now getting out into those domains and uh another parts of, of the military uh, we have had rf personnel before so we've had people from the rf regiment uh, and wider rf serve with the unit and you can probably remember some of those and so yeah so we are open tri service male female all three services uh, and you come and do you know two-year posting with us and then once you've done your two-year assignment you can go back to your parent unit and with a load of new skills loads of new experience loads of new opportunity you know and again that's i think one of our again selling points because a lot of specialist capabilities you have to join them and then once you're in you can't that's it you're in um, you can't sort of do this all two years and then go back if you want and then come back and keep dipping in and out whereas for us we we offer that so and i think that's that's a strength because we can offer some people something different and you know we've just had an individual who served served in the battery for a couple of years uh went through all the same training pipeline gained loads of new qualifications uh quality you know was a jtac and he's just gone back to his parent unit because they're deploying out to mali um and i saw that as a great opportunity not only for him to, to go back to his parent unit but also for the battery that he's going to go back there with that triangle on his arm uh, and spread the message about what we do and, and the opportunities we provide yeah great ambassador for the battery exactly we mentioned the royal marines earlier on uh scott and as somebody's been out of the military a long time i'm looking at the future commando force concept and it's you know the royal marines designing the way that they're going to modernize themselves and how they operate in the future and it's been described the royal navy as the most significant transformation and rebranding program since the second world war and not, not only tactics, techniques, and procedures, but talking about brand, they're actually talking about uniforms as well. So they're going the whole hog with this. And I think they've been very clever with the way they've gone about it. And I think it's quite significant what they're trying to do. Uh, and I'm looking at the army. It's getting very light with regards to armor. 
Uh, we're, we're getting rid of most of our tanks. Uh, the new Ajax vehicle is looking a bit iffy. You know, whether it's going to be millions more invested in it or binned. And one of the most, probably only from an outside look in, probably the most innovative thing I'm seeing the army doing is the so-called Ranger Regiments. Do you think the army overall is keeping up uh, in its modernisation and its agility? And is it, you know, is it attempting to do the same thing as the Royal Marines? So I think I think you can absolutely give credit to Royal Marines in a way they've gone about their business, and I think you know their branding is is exceptional. It's on point. Um, they've done some great stuff over the last sort of twelve to eighteen months um, with the Future Commander Force concept. And I think you know with the FCF stuff, I mean I don't know. You know I probably know as much as as you. As you. Um, but I would say you know it's understanding how we you know how the UK exploits the strengths of the of the two aircraft carriers, uh, and I think the Royal Marines play a big part in that. Um, I think for the Army. You know, I, I think the army is understanding what its strengths are and how it plays those strengths. And, you know, I, I sort of touched on it later on in my, my book choice. But, um, you know, I think the British army has always been good having these highly trained, educated teams of professionals that can go away overseas and achieve lots. And I think that the British army is trying to play to that strength with, you know, some of the some of the new units that are coming into our raw bat. Uh, and I think that's a positive thing because I think, again, it's understanding our strengths and how we then exploit that. And if anything, you know, arguably, perhaps you could argue we should have been doing that a while ago, you know, and actually we're slightly late. But I, but I think it's all positive um, from that front. Um, and in terms of kind of the armor versus the light, I, I think, again, it's just understanding we are a... An island nation. It's understanding what entirety of the UK is seeking to achieve in it, kind of its soft power overseas, but also what our strategic aims are from from a, from a nation's perspective, and then how the army moulds into that. And so I think you know we actually need our armour capability, uh, and we're not going to get rid of our armour capability. We're still going to have very much our warfighting division, our commitment to NATO. But also I think it's then understanding, but but actually we can still achieve a lot more with these sort of more low, light mobile forces that can be more deployed overseas, doing lots of more defence engagement, soft power kind of training teams, uh, developing the capacity of other nations. Uh, and I think that's one of our strengths you know if you look at the british army's history we've traditionally done a lot of that and i think it's just understanding how we then take that forward for the future so so i'm really positive about the future uh you can read a lot in the press and you know it's the press so don't read everything you, you sort of or don't believe everything you read but i think personally that the current team in army headquarters and beyond have got a clear vision of what they are the army what they want the army to, to look like what they want the army to be and what they want the army to deliver and i think that we're on a, the path to deliver that now and like any organization we'll hit our bumps in the road i have no doubt that our our brothers and sisters in the wider services have, have hit their fair challenges uh and will continue to do so but it's how you then evolve and adapt as, as a as an army to get around that in some respects i'd imagine a later army plays into the hands of the battery because the battery's in a late role is, is that a fair assumption yeah i think so i think i think a lot of the the work or the vision to have these kind of footprints overseas lots more and, and, and have lots more defense engagement provides lots of opportunity for, for the battery um, because that's kind of what we're used to. We're kind of used to sending these small teams of determined people who are highly trained, highly skilled, uh, you know, and, and just four individuals can can offer a significant amount with not only the skill sets and qualifications they bring, but also the type of people they are and the way they think. So, so yeah, absolutely, I agree. I think that um, for us, it's really promising, uh, and I'm certainly optimistic with the with the future. And I and I see loads of potential opportunities for us to to exploit. Now, I was going I was going more and more questions about obviously with the warfighting divisions and brigades. There's always a role, but it's it's also assisting or supplementing the specialist infantry 
range of battalions that are going out as these small training teams. Uh, I think um, our history was in the 50s and 60s and 70s. The British Army's always been sending these little training teams block piping all over the world. And they, they say it was all part of defence engagement. Oh, I mean, the old I mean, BMAT, wasn't it? Yeah, the BMAT. And then yeah. there was another organisation that was doing exactly the same thing in the 90s and the 200s as well. And a lot of that was working for defence attaches, defence sections around the world, providing a footprint of British experts or specialists who could um, teach police or military in various countries and have that influence. And so looking at these specialist infantry, the specialist infantry brigade or the Rage Brigade, as it's getting called, it's doing exactly the same. It's, it's definitely a strength, and hopefully the battery will be able to inject into that, you know, and, and get some very good trips out of it. Do you think the battery will, will get involved in the Ranger Brigade, Scott? Well, so I think I think the, you know, we're in a space at the moment in the army where we're all kind of waiting on more detail to come out in terms of missions and tasks and so on. But I think that, um, you know, what is evident to me uh, is that, you know, as I said earlier, our reputation is really high across the army at the moment, and we're and as a small unit, we are we are really well known, you know, at sort of the senior level as well, which is great, uh, and people recognise what such a small unit like us and, and just a small team from Force and Three can provide. So I think that, um, you know, that in itself is really positive because in some ways, uh, from what I've seen, you know, there's lots of people fighting to try and get us, you know, which is, which is hugely encouraging uh, and positive. And I think that, you know, whilst I don't know exactly where we'll go in the future in terms of physical structures and, and stuff like that, what I what I am confident about is that the entirety of the army will still be in high demand for Force and 3 battery um, and what we can offer. And so I suspect that, and I'm confident that we will continue to service where the army needs us in multi lots of different areas, whether that's kind of the conventional kind of advanced forces role that we provide at the moment to the war fighting division, or whether it's to more some of the unconventional stuff that's going on with, you know, some of the new units being created uh you know i think that there is scope and space for us to, to play a part in all of those and so i think that you know the army will absolutely maximize you know our strengths and what we can offer there and 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 utilizes as and when it needs us so yeah i'm, I'm confident with that there's always the unforeseen events as well <laughs> you just don't know what's around the corner yeah and so as usual then we're going to finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is our guest choice of book, film, and luxury item. So, Scott, what have you picked this week? So, the book I've chosen is, uh, is a book called In the Service of the Sultan by Brigadier Ian Gardner. Now, I'm not sure if uh, either of you read that, but it's a, it's a fantastic book. And I was very fortunate when I was at Staff College to to have uh, Brigadier Ian Gardner come and address uh, my my course. Uh, and he he's had a fa- fascinating military career so he's a royal marine by background um but as a, as a young officer he he served in dofar uh during sort of the, the campaign out there and then later in the falklands campaign served as a, as a company commander with 40 commandos so he's got he's got a second book about the falklands campaign as well and he's written a, a few books and you can find him on you know on google but um but the one uh, that i specifically had selected is, is in the service of sultan which is about his experiences serving as a young officer in, in dofar and i think it's a fantastic book because it's really easy to read uh which is great for me because uh, i'm terrible at reading um but what i love about it is just that military humor that is just constant and consistent throughout the book and you can relate any military person can just relate to that 
that sense of humor that he brings to life in the book about the realities of being in the military and then being overseas and not only having to kind of find your feet as a, as a young, you know, individual on operations and, and being kind of professional in what you do, but also working with other cultures and being in foreign lands and, and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's a great book, but I think what I really like about it is I can relate a lot of it to, to the battery as well. You know, so he was uh, working in a small team of UK personnel uh, from the three services, you know, and was was basically embedded with with a, a sort of Dofari battalion uh, as a as a uh, exchange officer. You know, so he's he was serving them, had to learn the language. You know, would would speak in a in a kind of language as well, so he had to learn all that. And you know, he, you know, there's a great bit in his book where he talks about trying to give artillery order because you know they didn't have artillery officers uh, from the the gunners sent over there, so the exchange officers had to train themselves or be trained in how to do sort of your fire missions as well for gunnery. Uh, so he's a Royal Marine officer trying to do a fire mission in the native tongue. And, you know, funny enough, the rounds don't go where they're supposed to go. And it just is a really funny bit, bit in the book where he sort of, you know, talks about that. But, um, you know, I, I, I can relate that to a lot about what about you do, where, you know, where our strengths are, again, going overseas, working with either on our own or with other nations, in isolated areas and then utilizing kind of your joint fires, your surveillance and reconnaissance to have that really overwhelming positive, you know, effect on the ground and, and inform the commander's decision-making. And and he brings that to life in space in his book. And I, I thought it was fantastic. So I highly recommend it. Yeah. So it's, it's a sort of a less well-known campaign, that whole late sixties, early seventies. And you had like the SES training teams out there as well. Uh, was Murbat and Dofar? I can't remember. Yeah. Was was, that, yeah. That, yeah. yeah. So that was one of the, the yeah, he actually he talks about that in his book, you know, and talks about how when that was going on, how his his unit, because he was more sort of further further to the to the west, um, the Murbat, uh, kind of on the line, uh, really holding the line, really. And he was saying how they they kind of were sort of tasked to to potentially go and support, but they were miles away and there was no roads and there was no av- very little aviation. So actually, realistically, what they could do was was very little. But yeah, he he does mention the Murbat piece in his book because he, I think he sort of crossed paths with. Some some of those individuals during his time out there because naturally the the brits were so few that it's like everyone knew everyone even if you working in it were working in a different camp and even though the, the special forces were doing their thing they still cross paths so he does reference it and uh, yeah it was a really interesting time because i didn't really know much about Dofar. um and the british army at the time i think was really focused on the rhine uh, over in germany and and the issues with that so the british army i don't think really invested too much into Dofar, whereas the royal marines absolutely exploited that because they saw it as a great opportunity to get their people over overseas and uh so i think the royal air force and and navy and, and royal marines absolutely were were over there i think there was a few army officers and stuff like that um you probably just didn't want to be in germany wanted something a bit more extravagant but um he touched Ronald fines that uh he said he served as a sultan's officer as well Ronald fines in his book looking for trouble I think it was just after you get booted out of the SAS for blowing something up, wasn't it? Blowing something, blowing yeah, a bank up right. or, or dam up or something. Anyway, but yeah, but uh, it's an interesting read. And for, for any listeners who are not aware of the Battle of Murbat, it's certainly worth a look up on the internet because um, the Fijian SAS operator that got killed there, Labala, I think he was called, massive big Fijian. He was working a twenty-five pounder fighting off the the insurgents as they were attacking it and he's a, he's a legend in the SES and I don't think he quite got the award that the people think no. he should have got either. No, I didn't. Um, so, I yeah. About the, um, that book as well, what I like about it is, again, I sort of touched on this earlier, is, you know, and you asked me the question about the future of the British Army. Well, I think, again, playing to our strengths, this to me is 
this is an area where I think it plays to our strengths. Again, it's sending sh- small teams, you know, over and, and embedding with a partner force. And it's a bit like what the Ranger concept and the SFABs are, are going to do. But effectively, being overseas, embedded with these these nations, working alongside them. Uh, and I think that book is fantastic to show you what you can achieve if you, if you really invest into that. And that was a successful campaign as well. Exactly. Uh, worked really well. So what's your film choice then, Scott? So I, I don't think it's been selected so far, but I've gone for A Bridge Too Far. Uh, I think it's one of those movies that's always on TV uh, each year. You know, and as soon as I see it on the TV guide, that's it. It's on uh, much of the dismay of my, my wife. Um, but uh, I mean, I love it. I just love the fact that it's still got that kind of classic British military humour in there as well, even in a very sort of serious movie where, you know, clearly it's quite quite sad about events that took place but you know when when you know there's a british army officer walking over a bridge with an umbrella you know you're on the right tracks and and i think again you know i've worked with americans lots and i think just a british sense of humor is, is always great especially when you're working with the us um but i would say actually i mean I, I love that movie but if i was going to select something to kick back and watch with i'd probably choose band of brothers i know it's not a movie but uh for me the band of brothers box set is, is is phenomenal and it's one of those things that i could watch every year and still not get bored my, i often wind uh, my airborne friends up by saying that talking about paratroopers in the second world war is the the best of trained men delivered by the worst of pilots on operations of dubious value <laughs> and it never fails to um wind them up so what's your luxury item uh so I've, i think this has been slated before but i've gone for coffee because uh i need a coffee in the morning to get myself going mm-hmm. otherwise i can't function and uh yeah i think um if i if i didn't take that I'd, I'd be regretting it um I think certainly in my current job, I, I need a coffee to get myself going because the amount I get bombarded with each day from 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 the serving members of the unit, which is which is great, but uh, they like to keep me on my toes. So at least a cup of coffee in the morning gets me going and can sustain me throughout most of the hours I work. Would have to be decaffeinated for you and me, Kev, wouldn't it? With our, with our various dietary ailments. <laughs> Thanks for sharing medical and confidence. <laughs> Yeah, and I I've given up caffeine. You know, I feel no benefits for it whatsoever. So, Kev, what's your choice this week? Uh, this way, I've gone for something a little bit more unusual than the, the normal ones we go for. I've gone for the American Civil War by John Keegan. It's something I've started to read a little bit more about because, obviously, the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865, was one of the longest and bloodiest of wars in that period. It was also deemed one of the first modern wars where industry started to play a big part in in the outcome of the war. And the outcome was probably, when you read through the books and you read through the history, the outcome was probably known all the way through that the South would lose eventually. But it, it's it's fascinated writers, artists and filmmakers um, with varying uh, degrees of... Um, Bias, so let's say, depending on who made the film. Am and, I right in saying? Sorry, to interrupt me. Yeah. Am I right in saying that the Civil War? There's more Americans killed in the Civil War than every other war that Americans fought in combined. Yeah, they, they just like most wars of that period. It was obviously there was a lot of wounded, a lot of people died of disease as well on both sides. And not forgetting, it was American versus American, so it was always going to be and an family enormous, versus family. Yeah, enormous amount of Americans. Uh, and, and again, it wasn't every state either. When you look at the map of America in, in the 1860s, there was a lot of what's called the territories. So around the coastal areas on the East Coast and the West Coast, there was states. And then in the middle of America, there was the, you know, there was places that they had no population at all. John Keegan picks the, the geography, the leadership and the, the logic of the war and takes us to the heart of the conflict, which was mainly around the slavery piece and the slavery states. 
and I think the challenge for him was how do you portray this book? Because if you like, I say just the same as films. There's many books written about the Civil War which give a uh, a biased opinion, and it's quite strange that after the end of the Civil War, um, Lincoln's assassination, and then years later in the 1950s, they started putting monuments up. It, it was almost how they the South lost, but it was the gallant South that lost. It wasn't seen as the traitorous South, if that makes any sense, because they were fighting against their own country. But they, and the they, race element tends to get overshadowed, doesn't it? Well, massively, but uh, even today, at the end of the war, the post-war versions of this period of history, the Confederate side was portrayed as the gallant loser the, and the gentleman South, rather than what it really was. And only recently, it's the Confederate flag, which was the flag of you know the other side, is being taken off state buildings and such like. When you think about it, in no other country did we ever have a civil war and then allow the losers to build monuments to their generals, politicians and flags. You know, in the English Civil War, we didn't do it. Um, the Irish Civil War, they didn't do it. And Spanish Civil War and all the rest of it. The winner was the winner. Um, so America is still divided very much by this history. It's, it's, uh, it has a massive impact. So it's quite an interesting book. Just the sheer volume, you know, they've gone from the straight line shooting each other like they did at Waterloo and other places to skirmishes to, um, you know, the introduction of submarine warfare was during the Civil, these Civil War Confederates used submarines. So it was the first industry, and obviously Europe, as it does, was selling ammunition and weapons and all the rest of it to both sides. It was it was an industrial scale. Well worth a read. I went to Gettysburg mm. you know, years and years ago, and it's a really well well laid out battle space, and you get a really good idea of the sort of pickets charge and all the casualties that were, oh, that happened in Gettysburg. A huge amount, and of course you've got the famous Gettysburg Address by Lincoln after it as well. So that's really whole Gettysburg thing's really mythologized, I think, in American culture. Yeah, a trench warfare. We introduced trench warfare during the American Civil War, then obviously. 40, 60 years later, during the First World War, we went back to it, and we hadn't learned that lesson from the American Civil War. Okay, so following on from John Holden's uh, discussion the other week about his book, I've picked Berlin, The Downfall by Anthony Beaver, uh, and it follows on from John's choice of Stalingrad, and the Battle of Berlin was really the end game of the war on the Eastern Front between the Russians and the Germans. And I think, again, you know, we, are, we lost... I'm not denigrating the deaths of soldiers here, but we lost 450 soldiers over the period of Afghanistan. But uh, German military casualties in the Eastern Front were 5 million. The Russians nearly 9 million military casualties. And some accounts state that the Russians caused 80% of um, German casualties during the war. So they really did see some vicious fighting. And there's a saying then that the British bought bought time, the Americans' uh, equipment, and the Russians' blood to the war. So I spent a bit of time in Berlin and uh, in Brixmas, and it was really strange when you went across through into the east back in the late 80s, you could still see all the devastation uh, over there and how little had been repaired from the Second World War. And knowing a bit about the city was useful to me as it helped me relate to the book a bit more. So Beaver's always good in human detail and the suffering of the three million German inhabitants. Uh, absolutely terrible. They're pounded by day and night from the RAF and the United States Air Force. And then the Red Army turned up, uh, and the only people defending the city were the young boys and old men of the Volksturm. And he describes how even then vent, uh, Russian troops were raping and pillaging, and vengeful SS men were going around hanging young kids and women off lampposts for not fighting. 
So quite controversial as well, because Beaver conducted a lot of this research in the Russian archives in Moscow after the Cold War. And when his book came out, the fact that he revealed that the Russians were conducting mass rapes of women in Berlin, it didn't go down too well with the um, with the Soviet authorities, well, the Russian authorities. So that's my choice for this week. So this episode marks the end of guests for season one, which is focused on the history of 473 battery from inception to the present day. We are going to have a second season, and we're going to hopefully branch out and cover a wider range of subjects that interest us, and hopefully our listeners too. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll record a short pod outlining our thoughts on future subjects, and we'll also use it as an opportunity to answer any questions you might have, so please send them in via our email address, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and I'm sure Kev will be amongst all those social media accounts because he's such a guru on, on uh, all those, aren't you, Kev? Just send it by postcard for me. <laughs> or letter. Or, or pigeon. Because <laughs> it'll get to me and I'll understand what's going on. <laughs> but thank you, Scott, for coming on the podcast. And to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming in. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes, which Colin will monitor. You can find us on the, the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And like I say, if you've got postcards, letters, send them in. It's fine. If you have downloaded us from iTunes and like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave us a review, as it's the best way of bringing to attention the series and suggestions. So thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support and sponsorship of the series and offering technical support for his company, iStar. And we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 